Oh, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. I, hilariously, I may have it mm-hmm. as a GarageBand thing. <laughs> like, not as an MP3, but as a GarageBand thing. Really? Let me see. That makes sense, actually. Let that's see. how you created it. Yeah, I've got it. Okay, fabulous. Hello, Whatnots. Uh, welcome to Not Drog. <laughs> you probably expected, well, first of all, you expected this episode last week, and sorry, there was sickness, but you probably expected us to be doing Drog and to continue our at this point three years rereading of judge shred's complete case files but no we are we have been invaded by scrolls we are part of um secretive <laughs> invasion, which is what which is what it's called it's shelved us steve morris has been doing an eight week long sort of reevaluation of secret invasion the 2008 marvel event and we have been invaded by scrolls and so we have resurrected baxter building for one final question mark go round. Yes, uh, exactly. We're covering 2008 Secret Invasion Fantastic Four series. It's a three-issue miniseries. Jeff, before we go any further, I just want to point out something that I literally only discovered while preparing to record this. Yes. Did you notice that issues one and three have chapter titles and issue two doesn't? No. No, I did yeah, not. Issue one is called Negative Energy. The whole thing is called No One Re- Comes Back Alive. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Issue one is called Negative Energy. Issue two has no title. Yeah. And issue three is called Escape from Fancy Island. And it's called Chapter Three. <laughs> so you have Chapter One and Chapter Three, but there is never an official declaration of Chapter Two, no. which speaks to the way that this comic series. Oh, exists. yeah. For Let sure. Let me just tell you. I am Graham McMillan. I am one of the two voices you could be hearing on this. And with me is the always beautiful, the always kind. But also, it seems like always sick, Jeff Lester. Hello, everyone. I apologize in advance for my congested and draggy sounding voice. I wish I could say I was hanging out in scroll roadhouses, drinking it up. But in fact, I'm just I'm just sick as a dog. I will also say that uh, you may hear panting. Uh, that is not Jeff. Speaking of dog. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is a dog who is up here and it is warm. So you're going to hear panting on my side. And I'm sorry for everyone who that's going to annoy. It is literally just a reality of there is a dog here who is going to be panting very loudly right next to me. And I will try and mute myself as much as possible. But you're going to hear it every now and again. I apologize. But on the plus side, that might distract you from Secret Invasion Fantastic Four issues one through three. Oh, God. Now, Graham, before we get there, and we will get there, and we'll probably, it'll it'll be 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 a a, whole thing. It'll be a whole thing. Exactly. I thought that it would be a good idea for us to talk about, because, you know, Baxter Building, we did did 50 episodes, right? As we read through. We did 50, and we stopped it like two and a half years ago, for real. Yeah, two and a half years ago, where we read the first 416 issues of Fantastic Four. And one of the things that's been interesting to me is we moved on to Drock which is our read-through, as you mentioned, of Judge Dredd, The Complete Case Files. Every month we read a a new Case Files volume, and that Case Files volume more or less um, covers between six months to a year's worth of Judge Dredd stories. I mean, 
now currently it's basically a year's worth of material in that it's a six month span of 2000 AD dread stories and magazine stories. It's a lot of material. It's 300 pages a month. Now, one of the things for me that has been very exciting to, to learn and discover is that, you know, judge dread is, is pretty awesome, especially the stuff, the classic stuff that I've been exposed to by, um, John Wagner, uh, co-writing with Alan Grant and also on his own as more and more people are finally at the area where we're, uh, reading currently getting their handle on dread, but it's a, it's really kind of an amazing transition and in, in a way a fun comparison contrast, almost to the Fantastic Four, because, you know, Fantastic Four was Lee and Kirby, and to a huge extent, um, for, you know, Joe Sinnott, for the first 100 issues until uh, until Kirby left. And uh, one of the things that was really fun about Baxter Building, particularly covering those issues, is sort of looking at it through, I, I think, a more modern context of not seeing Lee and Kirby as you know just an amalgam is just a a team that was working in in perfect unison but you know the way that the stand in the marvel bullpen would have you believe but actually two different men with two very different ideas about the stories that they were telling and literally seeing the 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 tensions on the page um and you know in a way contrasting that with john wagner and alan grant doing Judge Dredd for, what was it, like eight, nine years? Yeah, it was through, Wagner basically takes over at the end of the first year. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, Wagner's basically the, the lead writer through Necropolis, which I think is like the 14th year. Right. But like he, he and Grant are, are co-writing for, I mean, a good eight or so years there. Yeah. Yeah. And so so it's a very interesting comparison in a way in that, honestly, you know, the first hundred years of the FF probably took, you know, what, uh, seven, eight years itself. Right. Like that's like 96 issues in like approximately yeah, for, the first 100 odd issues of, of the FF is, I mean, nine years. Right. Right. So, you know, eight to nine years. So in a weird way, kind of a. Uh, I have to say, Judge Dredd holds up a million times better when Wagner loses Grant than when Stanley loses uh, uh, Kirby. Like, the Lee Basima and Romita issues are just terrifying. And then you see a very long period of cover band blues and then, you know, some really interesting pivots. And by the time the FF checks out at the end of Volume 1, there's been so many like drastic turns and misfires that the whole thing has like a certain um, car crash synergy. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, Graham is, and this is going to sound crazy, but do you miss it? Cause I feel like the last couple of years we've been reading Drock and dread and that stuff is um, uh in many ways, I would say so much better put together sort of in a pound pound year for year kind of way um, in terms of stuff that's of high quality and interesting and doesn't just, um, for lack of a better term, uh, regurgitate its own vomit 
um, quite the way that some of the stretches in the FF do. Uh, and yet, even having said that, I found myself kind of nostalgic about the idea of us returning to Baxter Building and returning to talking about the Fantastic Four. I agree with almost all of that, actually. I, I also found myself nostalgic. I also think that Dread is better. Mm-hmm. I, I think, so far, at least in Drock, the, the nadir of Dread that we've read has still been more enjoyable than like the worst that, that Fantastic Four got. Because mm-hmm. I think Fantastic Four got really bad at times. Oh, yeah. You know, got like like just genuinely genuinely terrible i also miss doing fantastic four because i would say that the defalco ryan stuff was not great but there was a quality to it and i don't mean that in the sense of it is quality comics but like there is a tangible something to it it's it's actually among the stuff i miss the most yeah yeah, yeah. that's mm-hmm. what i'm gonna say it's, it's there's something about it that i'm like but remember when you know it, it's funny that we're saying this like for this particular miniseries which picks up on on like a, um, an important plot thread from it but there was some like you know i remember Pybox the power scroll yeah right or, or lyja laser fist she wasn't yeah. just lyja she was lyja laser fist I, and there, there you know there's something you know definitely didn't work mm-hmm. with all of that stuff you know uh, ryan's artwork especially was particularly pedestrian in a way that just feels the opposite of what i want from a fantastic four comic well but there's also something that is dumb enough or weird enough or or ridiculous enough might be the mm-hmm. better way to put it mm-hmm. in a way that, like i do miss mm-hmm. you know like I, I i actually do and it's funny i i i don't know if you did the same thing but after Baxter Building, I did read like, the first few issues of the, the Heroes Return or Heroes Reborn, mm. whichever one it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, not not the Lee one, not the Jim Lee one. Mm-hmm. The, the one that follows, which starts off as as Chris Claremont and Alan Davis. Wait, wait, that's no, sorry, that's sorry, Heroes start... Return, isn't that? Or yes, is that? Yes. Yeah, sorry. I okay, remember, I can't which one It doesn't. Sorry. sorry, it doesn't start. It starts off as oh shit, who does this? Because Claremont comes on after the fact. Right, Claremont, it might be Scott Lobdell and Alan Davis even. That would make sense, yeah. But I did. I, I read like the the opening of of that series, and enjoyed it, but also it wasn't the same. Like I I, mm-hmm. I hesitate to say like the problem is it was too good, mm-hmm. but it wasn't that flavor of bad. You know and what? I think weirdly enough, that flavor of bad was what I really wanted. Yes. I know exactly what you mean, and I also have a theory about the Fantastic Four as a comic, and part of what just deeply annoys the crap out of me with Fantastic Four Secret Invasion. And also, I have to say, because unlike you, I did not jump to Heroes Reborn, I was really tempted, especially especially with Chris Claremont in there, you know what I mean? But... uh, but what I did do is I have read not much, like maybe the first 14, 15 issues of Dan Slott's Fantastic Four when when the characters were brought back, I say recently, I guess it's been something like three years or more. And um, I don't like it. And the other thing that I think is interesting is, and maybe you can check me if I'm wrong on this, but I feel Fantastic Four Secret Invasion is not terribly different from Dan Slott's Fantastic Four in a lot of ways. 
I want you to explain that in some depth, but that means we're talking about this series. Yes. Like, I think you want to. Right. Um, I, I like the slot series. Mm-hmm. I don't love the slot series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, for all that it does appeal to me. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Things that I think I like about it are also the things I don't like about it, weirdly mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is to say, Slot has very particular ideas about what a Fantastic Four comic should be. Yes. Right? Central to those ideas are the idea that Fantastic Four comic is a family comic. That's right. Right? And he, and he keeps on trying to put like the idea of the family first. Mm-hmm. And because of that, he writes very particular soap opera addicts into the, the, the comic. And in some cases... I like I, I kind of agree with them that like you know that is the core you know if you're thinking about the stuff that worked for me you know I'm and I'm thinking about like the Lee Kirby era I'm thinking about the Bernie era as well and honestly I again I'm, I find myself thinking about the DeFalco Ryan era mm-hmm. the the soap opera stuff is half of the appeal and I know for you it was especially in Lee Kirby yes right you, you deeply got into the soap opera aspect mm-hmm. the problem is that the that his version of the soap opera like leaves me cold as often as as like as it's as successful as it is unsuccessful Mm. you know like i am like i i i the idea of you know here's ben getting married to alicia great okay wonderful and then they go on honeymoon and ben has by the hulk also great but then Johnny meets his soulmate on an alien planet and she is going to suck his life away to power her planet or whatever that plot was. No. (laughs) You know? Right. And and part of it is also Slot is a very particular type of writer. And this is a flaw of his Spider-Man as well, I think. That he wants to answer questions that aren't even really questions. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, he thinks two things too much. And he's like, oh, you know what I've got to work on? Mm-hmm. When they throw trash away in the negative zone, right. it's got to go to, like, a negative zone garbage planet. But what if that garbage planet gains sentience because the Nihilus once crashed into it? And then, and you know, and then he comes up with this thing, and it's, like, the heart of the story is this thing that, honestly, no one cares about. Right. So, um, so I like it, but mm-hmm. I also dislike it at the same time. I like it enough to read it on Marvel Unlimited. Right. I don't like it enough to remember that it always exists in Marvel Unlimited. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, like, I'll see it on, like, you know, New This Week, and I'll be like, oh, I haven't read this for, like, four or five issues. I'll go back and read them, and mm-hmm. they'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> but they'll be fine, and then I'll forget about it again. <laughs> right. Right. You know? But I, I do not think that this series is the same at all. I don't mm-hmm. think Secret Invasion is the same. I think it has some of the same, like, um, needs to answer things, question mark. Mm-hmm. Um, but it goes about them in such a, uh, in such a different way. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I reject the comparison, ultimately. I think, I think that is... I'm going to leave that as the groundwork on your side. And what I'm going to do is tell the listeners uh, the, the nickel tour plot line about Fantastic Four Secret Invasion, the three issues, um, and talk about sort of the idea of why it sort of, to me, when you mentioned it, seemed good, quote-unquote, on paper. So Secret Invasion is the Marvel mega event uh, written by Brian Bendis. The main event was drawn by uh, Lionel Yu and had 
50 kajillion uh, miniseries, of which this was one. As is the case with a lot of things from Brian Bendis, it, the plot of uh, Secret Invasion is sort of haha jokingly ultra conservative in the sense that the scrolls are invading Earth, but have in fact been covertly invading the planet for a while. And hold on, secret invasion, Jeff. Yes, in secret. So it's a secret invasion, and the the uh, the the part of the the two things that really I feel set it up are a um, the big plot twist is a lift from DC's wonderful Millennium event, in that a lot of the heroes or close supporting characters have been scrolls quote-unquote all along which is to say for a very long time and so the secret invasion more or less gets going as the heroes are caught aware and taken off guard by those closest to them um uh turning out to actually be scrolls and in addition they uh the heroes go and recover a spaceship um, in the Savage Land, and the spaceship is filled with a bunch of earlier versions of the heroes that, and insist that they are, in fact, the real heroes. While this is going on, there are other things that are happening, and the one that's most germane to the what we're going to discuss is um, Mr. Fantastic seems has disappeared. Uh, Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman, is shown in the opening moments of uh, Secret, the opening pages of Secret Invasion, walking into the Baxter building, opening the negative zone, um, and more or less uh, apparently destroying the Baxter building. And um, to complete my thought from earlier in my usual messy Jeff fashion, because I'm that good a scroll impersonator of myself. The idea that also really makes Secret Evasion quote-unquote stand out is Bendis seems very excited with the idea of making the scrolls religious zealots. And so there is a deeply uncomfortable level of post-9-11 Islamophobia like sewn into the fabric of secret invasion in a way that i i found really unpalatable back then right yeah yeah so i uh, i this is where i actually talk up the shelf dust connection for us doing this podcast a bit more great because one of the things that shelf dust is doing is it's got essays for each of the issues of secret invasion and the issue the the uh I think it's the one for issue seven or maybe issue six. There is a really good essay by a writer whose name I can only remember his first name or test. I'd have to look it up. But he basically does an, uh, an essay about that. He does an essay that is essentially, why does Brian Michael Bendis hate people look like me? Yeah. yeah. Where he addresses the, the Islamophobia of Secret Invasion head on. Uh, and also makes connections with other parts of Bendis' work. Mm-hmm. Where that has popped up more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very good essay. Mm. But it's something that, like you, when Secret Vision was happening, I was very aware of and very anxious about. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good way of saying. But revisiting it, accompanying this series, like I really was just like, oh shit, like I can't. 
I honestly can't believe that it got seen like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's genuinely surprising. One of the things that is also very interesting about Secret Invasion is there was a tremendous marketing push. I mean, Marvel... As far as I can tell, at least if I understand the timeline, Secret Invasion rolls pretty close on the heels of Civil War, which was a tremendous, enormous success for Marvel, a crossover event that just sold bajillions of copies, was considered a success by just about um, every metric, and was kind of Marvel coming back to what Marvel had stepped away from, which is to say things felt like they were part of a self-contained universe again. And this is following after like four or five years of all the books sort of kind of happening in their own discrete, you know, slices of the same universe. Yeah. Yeah. They were niches. Mm -hmm. There was House of M. Right. Oh, right. Which, which, was in theory an Avengers X-Men crossover, but which sort of, you know, things splintered out of there. Yeah. And not only, like, not least of which, the No More Mutants thing, mm-hmm. which right. redefined the X-Men line. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, as once it has been, was 2005, then Civil War's 2006 into 2007, and then mm-hmm. Secret okay. starts mid-2008. Right. So it's very much post-Civil War, Marvel at the top of its game, and part of that is... Um, an even bigger unified marketing push, I think, for these events. Just it felt like you couldn't go anywhere on the comics internet back when there were multiple places to go and more or less not bang into some sort of piece or promo or something about Secret Invasion. And in fact, the digital copy of the Secret Invasion chain uh, trade paperback has a lot of copy, um, a lot of the embrace change. Uh, promotional marketing material that was just jammed into Marvel was, Comics relentlessly. Yeah, exactly. And I think those um, probably really we won't talk about per se other than the Embrace Change um, marketing was very much of a it, it, would, it was feel-good advertisements that usually had humans and scrolls together um positively like yes, holding yes. hands it, kissing it, it was it seemed like sort of generic stock photographs of happy families except one of them would be a scroll yeah so um so it's really hard to to kind of overstate how deeply and cyn- if you if we're being generous cynically marvel was pandering to the post 9-11 um proto-conservative instinct i would say you know like whatever generic thing that you wanted to say about oh you know either they look like us but they're not us or you think that it's normal that your girl is you know your your little girl is playing with a blank or you know your son is well, again, dating a you're, blank you're, you're really getting into like the implicit racism of the heart well, patient, right actually i thought there was an impressive amount of homophobia in there as well like it oh, really yeah, went yeah. for some homo it really did do 
like it really doubled down like on it's the othering. Multiple flavors of bigotry. It really yeah. is multiple flavors yeah. of bigotry. Absolutely, absolutely. There, it's 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 a smorgasbord of, of yes. bigotry. Smorgasbord of bigotry is the perfect way to describe secret invasion. So, part of one of the things that I should say about Secret Invasion Fantastic Four is that it is a three-issue mini in which uh, we find out what happened to uh, the Baxter building. We discover who the scroll impersonator is um, that's impersonating Sue. And um, I have to say, in the realm of Small Mercies, of which there are several for this series, uh, someone along the way, the writer on this is Roberto Guerrero-Sacasa, who was the writer of one of the F- Fantastic Four titles, I think, at the time. Um, he was writer of four, I believe, although that might have finished by this point. It may well have, yeah. For those who sort of remember, I think Aguirre-Sacasa sort of ended up accidentally at the center of a controversy because my understanding is Mark Wade and Mike Waringo were going to relaunch Fantastic Four and were th- it was more or less announced that they were going to get pulled because Bill Jameis had a very different idea for the Fantastic Four book that he wanted, which is to say a family... A sitcom approach and had Roberto Aguirre Sacasa do do the writing for that. Um, I think, as if I remember correctly, because of all the various outrage and assuming this was not all one big heavy-handed promotional stunt from Marvel, which I mean you can't rule it out. We basically ended up with two Fantastic Four series as a result: one by Wade and Waringo, and then four by Aguirre Sacasa who comes in and writes uh, Secret Invasion Fantastic Four. And like I said, I don't know whether to give him credit or the credit of the editors in here, but they do quite smartly make the scroll imposter, Lijah, from the Fantastic Four, uh, the the sort of our beloved slash not good um, end of volume one of FF written, you know, by um, Tom DeFalco and, and Paul Ryan. Ryan, right? Or is it Neary? It's Paul Ryan. It is Paul Ryan. Paul Neary actually does the art on here and actually threw me off at a couple of points for that. I was like, is it the same no, guy? No, he doesn't. <clears throat> who's the guy? Who's the Paul doing the, uh, doing, providing the inking or the semi-art in the first issue? Brian uh, Hitch's regular it, dude? It's Brian, it's Barry Kitson is penciling. Yes. Uh, and is it not make great as inking? There's nine million inkers, one of which is Paul Ryan. So... So go to hell, Graham McMillan. Go is to hell they? and die. So I, I, I check this. Paul Neary is one of them. Oh, Paul Neary. Paul Neary is one of them. See, that's what I meant to say before you confuse me with your <laughs> scroll mind waves. Get away from me. I, so I'm, I'm, just, I'm messing with your mind. You really are. You really are. I don't know who to trust. Um, so uh, bringing Lysha back seems like a very smart and elegant move. We haven't really seen her. So she's a deep cut for Fantastic Four readers. She's a scroll who was married to Johnny Storm, which I don't know if, you know, if you've been listening to the Baxter Building on and off, you already know that. Know that that was probably one of my favorite aspects of the book in the final day. So I was, I was very excited to see her come back. Um, and... I thought that two things that I appreciated were, one, she did not come back as some sort of crazy religious zealot. She actually is recognizably, in many ways, the character uh, as portrayed in the DeFalco run. And 
Um, at the end of the series, she more or less rides off alone into the sunset of the negative zone, which, considering that she's not going to get dragged into the, um, you know, grand kilothon that is the final couple of chapters of Secret Invasion, I think sort of seems like a small mercy, you know, comparatively. Um, and that more or less ends the few positive things that I'm going to say, but, uh, it's sort of an overview. And like I said, there's things, I think I appreciate that. I appreciate they brought back Lysha, that it wasn't just genera scroll 2009, that there is, um, time spent trying to resolve her and Johnny's relationship and that she more or less gets what may or may not be considered a happy ending, considering she's never going to, you know, actually end up with Johnny. Um, so all of that is good, unfortunately, because none of it is done well and is not, you know, good. I was, I was going to say, like, I, I understand all of the reasons you're like, and this is good, but everything you're listing, I'm like, yeah, but it's kind of shit. Oh, it's total shit. And that's like, the thing like, that's what, problematic. What are, yeah. I mean, you know, to, to sort of to get back to to Secret Invasion the core series for a second, Secret Invasion is is also shit ultimately, uh, and I don't just mean that in the sense of like oh there you know there is there is the bigotry all through it right there is you know it it's it's a very ham fisted nine eleven mm-hmm. you know, allegory or or maybe not an allegory but like informed very much by nine eleven nine eleven trauma. But it's also just even outside of all of that, it's a very poorly done series. Uh, oh, the, the, shockingly the, so. Yeah, there is not a lot of tension for something that should be a paranoia fest. You mentioned Millennium, and Millennium has its own flaws. Oh God, does it have its own flaws? <laughs> it also has its own racism. Let's be perfectly honest. But it does at least get the idea of widespread paranoia over it in a way that Secret Invasion never does. And Secret Invasion should be way more successful because Millennium was, oh, Commissioner Gordon's the Manhunter. Next month, it was a Commissioner Gordon robot that had replaced the real one. Here's the real one. Right. You know, or Dirk Davis is Booster Gold's Manhunter. By the way, the series is cancelled, so you'd never see him again ever. You know? <laughs> Whereas mm-hmm. Secret Invasion actually does go... Oh no, Spider Woman's been a scroll for the past few months. Or the Mockingbird that died was actually a scroll. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they, they they have actual replacements in there and they, they at least seemingly intended to keep some of those core. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Um as it turned out, like of course they didn't. But you know, the last quarter of Secret Invasion as a series is basically one fight scene. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, including mm-hmm. issue seven, where nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Literally, nothing happens in an entire issue-long fight scene. You know, it's it's impressive to waste the amount of real estate that Secret Invasion does. Mm-hmm. It's impressive that it manages to accomplish so little in so many pages. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, like you said, Secret Invasion issue one has. The capture of Reed Richards, but also Sue Richards goes into the Baxter building and seemingly destroys it, setting up this series, right? Mm-hmm. And this series picks up from that in theory. But really, it just takes that scene and goes, oh, I know a story I want to write. And then, almost like Secret Invasion, doesn't actually fulfill its own 
ideas. Agreed. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, part of it is two things. Now, the other thing that I think is kind of weird is, um, you know, thanks to a fluke of history, you would think based on his Marvel career that Roberto Aguirre Sacasa would be just kind of a kind of like Robert Zimmerman, kind of like a deep cut trivia name of like, who's a guy who worked at Marvel and was getting a ton of work and you never understood. And then they went away and you never saw him again. Kind of guy, except Roberto Aguirre Sacasa ends up over at Archie years later, ends up, um, you know, does, uh, is it afterlife with Archie? The, um, really well done, uh, Archie, yeah, yeah, Supernatural series. Sabrina, yeah. But also, Riverdale. Well, and that's what I was going to say. More or less goes on, and this think about how mind-bending this is, and revitalizes Archie as a brand. Like, shockingly so. Riverdale is huge. Sabrina, his, his reboot, ends up being huge when it's done as a series on Netflix. He does... A lot that is shockingly successful, shockingly successful. So in a way, what's weird is, um, well, I mean, among other things, what's weird is, is that it's amazing that Aguirre Sacasa does that considering these three issues, which are not done at the beginning of his Marvel career. He has been writing the Fantastic Four for a while. He's written hundreds of pages of comics by this point, including Spider-Man and some other titles that I don't remember, but monthlies that went on for good chunks of time. And it's, this is Terrible, terrible storytelling choices throughout all three issues. You have three, you have scenes that literally would be done in one panel or two panels in an old Marvel comic. Classic example. There's a page where um, you cut back to an interlude where after the Baxter building has disappeared, you find out uh, you cut to a reaction crowd of New Yorkers uh, staring up at the Baxter building. And more or less, they're like, ah, doesn't this more or less happen every month? So it's kind of like a comical, you know, sort of, yeah. yeah, Stanley aside, except it's a full fucking page, which is a lot of real estate, especially when you only have a three issue story. So, there is so much vamping that is done on these pages that ends up taking the air out of what could have been, if nothing else, a by-the-numbers uh, FF that's really an F2-type adventure because it's Ben and Johnny um, dealing with Lija and trying to figure out how to get out of the negative zone and dealing with negative zone monsters with Franklin and Valeria uh, in tow. And you're like, okay, all of that is like, you know, the extent to which it is not a Fantastic Four story by the numbers is precisely because of how unbelievably boring and poorly paced uh, Aguirre Sacasa <laughs> makes, makes it. To say that he, it's, it's like you know he's making some choices at least, but it, all of the choices are the wrong choices. Yes, 
Yeah, absolutely. They are, they are, they're boring. Like I, you just would not. It, and it's, and this is when I started talking about this stuff with Dan Slott, this is kind of a little bit of what I meant in that. I think although Slot is by far a better storyteller, um, there is a lot of the domestic um, FF stuff. Like, there's a lot of cute kid shenanigans in Fantastic Four Secret Invasion where, you know, Ben has to carry the kids around while fleeing monsters and then he has to tell them to hide and then they come out and then they get a hold of, like, Reed's power suit and then they, they beat up the bad guys while yelling kid things that sound cutesy. You know, kind of kind of like you never really see... Fuck, you see kids act in, like, bad... In bad TV, but not yes, really in real life. It's not. How, it's not how real kids act. No, it's how fictional kids act. Exactly, and it's, so it's fictional kid itis, which, while I certainly can say that that is something to be considered about the Fantastic Four, it is, you know, for lack of a better term, because I'm an old fanboy, quote unquote, not my Fantastic Four, and so. Sort of similarly, when I sat down to read the FF one-shot intro to Empire that Slot, Slot wrote, which literally is the FF landing on a gambling planet and Franklin and Valeria running off to become super gamblers or something to, like, win back the cosmic doodah or something. Like, it's all very, um, it's all very cute in a way that aspires to a level of afternoon um, animation, you know, that I really couldn't care less about. Like, in a way... I'm willing to to cut Slot some more slack, uh, but almost for the wrong reasons, Mm -hmm. which is to say, by this point, both Franklin and Valeria could not act like regular kids. Like, Like, Valeria is now for some reason, hyper smart. Like, beyond precociously smart, she's almost as smart as Reed. Yeah. But but has none of the emotional intelligence. And Franklin is... I mean, I'll be honest, I have no fucking idea what age Franklin Richards is supposed to be these days. Yeah, absolutely. Genuinely. But I know he's been aged up and down a bunch of times. Right. And also, at some point, he had godlike powers. Right. Like, omnipotence, and then didn't. Mm Mm-hmm. But, so, on the one hand... There's no way they could act like regular kids, which is which. Honestly, they should be doing in Secret Invasion mm-hmm. because neither of those things have happened at that point in Secret Invasion. Um, but but on the other hand, that's not really a defense. No, it it's you know not I mean? right. Like, yeah, right. It's not a defense to be like Sludge. Just you know, Sludge writing in continuity, but the characters are still broken. Right. So you know, that's like mm. I think there my thing that I realized of while reading Fantastic Four Secret Invasion is it at its core it very much reads like the work of someone who's going to go on to make Archie popular again. You know what I mean? Like there's a certain and that's actually not fair because Aguirre Sacasa more or less brings the batshit to Archie in a way that he brings the lukewarm, tepid water to his Marvel work, right? So 
it, it, it's true. Like everything that makes his Archie stuff successful is entirely absent in his Marvel work. Yeah, is is the is the very opposite. Is it's like if nothing else, it's possible he learned the right lesson from all of his Marvel work, which is don't do it like this. You know, do it the opposite of this. Um, but for me, I realized while reading such a dull three issue series in which. Among other things, Reed, uh, Ben and Johnny are mostly entirely reactive characters. You have Lija's decisions more or less drawing the first part of the book. You have uh, Franklin and Val's um, solution, which is get to the super prison that has been built in the way in the negative zone in the wake of civil war and get to one of the smarter criminals in there who can more or less fix the equipment and bring them home. And then ultimately it's the tinkerer in the third issue who more or less does the work to get them home. You, because no one has any interest in it. Ben punches things and you see the aftermath of things of him punching. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So that that is that is a recurring a recurring problem for me with this series. Yeah. Which is to say, everything interesting happens off panel. Yeah. Everything interesting happens off panel. You get to see like the moment of revelation. Sue is actually Elijah. You get to see Ben at the like at the wall of the prison, yeah. going, "I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna have to punch in," mm-hmm. and then it cuts to a scene. And you get to see the aftermath of something that has happened, and yep. then it cuts back to the aftermath of where you just left. Yep. It's three issues of you seeing nothing that's actually interesting. That's right. That that is that is literally the case. I would say the the sole exception is a scene where, and I think this shows you how bad the storyteller's Aguirre Sacasa is at this. Lyja and the Human Torch are sort of semi-fighting and talking. And out of nowhere, a New York police car, NYPD police car, uh, flies at Lyja from behind. And Johnny's like, oh, look out, and swipes her aside. So he saves her. Then they smooch. Then they have to save each other from the tendril of a, a tentacle of a cosmic jellyfish. Like... Just saying that out loud, I feel, should make Jack Kirby's bones tremble in the grave. You know what I mean? Because that is so, like, it's so so lacking in imagination. Like, literally lacking in imagination. And I'm someone who, on the full-page panel where they kiss, because I'm apparently a Johnny Elijah um, shipper, because there was a glowing amorphous jellyfish in the background, I'm like, oh, that's kind of a nice touch. And then, of course, it attacks them on the next page, and they have to team up to do something by, like, you burn it with X, and I'll burn it with Y, and this will very cleverly, like, make it go away. Short-circuit it. Yeah. Yes, right? Like, what? Yeah, but, like, there's there's so much... <sighs> We're just going to complain about this comic. There's so much that is off about this comic uh in many ways but let's stick to the writing for now sure not only does the comic make a point of avoiding every interesting scene yes it also makes the negative zone seem boring as shit and just filled with exactly. giant alien versions of insects or or, or yeah exactly um like that's yep. it that's all the, the negative zone has become yeah which is you know 
amazing, honestly, when you think about everything else that could that could happen. Yeah. Like, it's genuinely amazing that that's what they do with it. Yes. But it it normalizes things like there's a prison in the negative zone where they're keeping supervillains. Yeah. And that's just like, there's like one line of Franklin being right. Like, my daddy's a good man. If he knew that you weren't really a bad guy, he wouldn't keep you in here. But that's it. There's no... You know what's really fucking terrible? That they had Super Gitmo in the negative zone. Yeah. Actually, Graham, can I ask you something? Because this is one of the few things that actually perplexed me. Is um, Agor Sakasa spends a kind of dumb amount of time talking about how the nickname for the prison is Fantasy Island. And you're going to say, is it? I don't... That seems new information to me. Okay. It's... I assume it is new information, and maybe it's just so you get your catchy title for issue three. But why? Like, they all make it seem like... Because it's told from this thing of, like, Franklin being told this and more or less being like, it's a grown-up adult thing that I don't get that everyone looks uncomfortable about when they talk about. Why? What is it? (laughs) Why? No, exactly. It, It really, like legitimately is is confusing to me okay it, i i don't i didn't get it because people don't die like the fantasy island the tv show from the 70s people fly to the island and have their fantasies fulfilled by ricardo montalban and herve villachez and whoever the special guest star of the week is and that went for many years but nobody died on that show, apart from people's interest in stories, which is maybe why Roberto Guerrero shouts it out, but I have no idea. Like, I, I, I genuinely don't get it. Like, they're kind of like, you know, like it's a an ironic nickname, and I'm like, was Gitmo named Fantasy Island? And we, and I, I don't I, know I, that. I just or up while, while we're talking, okay. And apparently, the name comes from a Civil War miniseries. Oh, so I, I, okay. So it's not. I, it's Mark Miller misunderstanding pop culture as opposed uh, no, to not, not, or not the actual Civil War series, but but uh, Civil War Frontline. So Paul Jenkins would have been doing it. Okay, and still no explanation as to why. Like like because that gets I mean, a significant I have, I have, amount of multi-panel it's, things. Yes, right? it's really really weird. Okay, it's, it's very very strange. But also, you know. Maybe it's me, but I still feel that there is a moral component to the entire prison in the Phantom Zone thing. Oh, yeah. That is, like, oddly glossed over. Right. But lampshaded at the same time. Yeah. In this series. Right. Right. Yeah, which is kind of the... I mean, that's it. They literally have that called out in a page of, you know really saccharine inept drama you know where the tinkerer is like yeah oh you guys are stuck here fuck you i had my civil liberties trampled and i was taken away from my kids and thrown in a prison for no reason and they were like but won't you help us mister i'm i'm gonna say something yeah, cute I, and kid like yeah, i am a crying kid i'm so a i'm a moppet yeah exactly and again here's a prison of super criminals now Barry Kitson also, I'm assuming, you know, was on prescription painkillers and needed a paycheck. And that's why he 
he could only do so much with a subpar script. But I'm shocked by how boring a prison of the world's most dangerous criminals really is. Like, and we've had multiple dangerous prisons, you know, dangerous criminal prisons throughout Marvel history before. This one literally is like, you see two people, one of whom is, I think, Vic Sage, the question? I still don't know, but... <laughs> um, okay, but here's the other thing, and this is a story thing as opposed to a Kitson thing, because I want to come back to Kitson because I think his art is, is terrible in this. Yeah. Um, They get to the, the, the prison, right? Mm-hmm. Would the prison have a portal back to the regular world? I mean... Uh, you part of me is you would think, but I would assume the whole idea is no. It's just a one wayer. Like someone opens the portal from the outside, and then you send people in. But you know the weird part is <laughs> Batman Fortnite, the recent crossover comic between Batman and a bunch of uh, video game franchise in which a bunch of tweens jump around and shoot each other and do dance moves spends a lot more time thinking out the logistics of a portal dimension prison and how it's run than this comic, or as far as I could tell, any of Marvel's comics that had to deal with the fact that, you know, let's face it, Marvel at a certain point, like, was kind of yucking it up, where it's like, hey, you know, it's great, our heroes are fascists, but you can't call them that, but that's what they are. But they're really not, but they are, but, you know, but don't say it. But, but it's you okay. do. Yeah, exactly. But it's okay, but it's okay because Civil fascists. War. Well, they're well-meaning fascists, and, and also because a Speedball blew up, which, let's face it, is an amazing metaphor for 9-11. So, speedball, speedball blew up Connecticut. Speedball blew up Connecticut. That's a phrase. That is such a phrase. Anyway, you can tell I don't even want to talk about this comic anymore because I'm starting to rap nostalgic for Civil War. For Civil but, War, right? So there's... Um, there, I, no, but like... Th- yeah. This, yeah. We didn't even finish the plot synopsis, basically. So, I mean, the plot well, synopsis I mean, is this could have been one issue. Yeah. Skrull Sue, who turns out to be Elijah, takes the, neg- takes the top of the Baxter building containing Johnny, Ben, uh, Franklin, and Valeria into the negative zone... She reveals herself to be Elijah to Johnny. They fight. Then Elijah's like, oh, but I was sent to kill you and I didn't kill you. So really, I've reformed if you think about it. Then she teams up with the two of the Fantastic Four that are actually in this comic to keep them alive while they go to uh, Fantasy Island where they find the Tinkerer yeah. who takes them home. Mm-hmm. The end. I mean... And that's three issues of a comic. To be fair, it's one of those, like, with that much stuff in it, it really would be, it, should, it, sh- it shouldn't it should be more than two issues. I can maybe see it being a full annual. But I don't even think back in the days of, of Marvel's super compression, they would do all that in one issue. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I mean, you're right. It's bloated. But I, I feel like it's... One plus uh, okay. issue bloated, not two issues of blow. Yeah, I mean, with that again. So here's a, here's something else that's, that's poor about this comic. The first two issues could have been an issue, and then you end with we have to go to yep. Fantasy Island. Agreed, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Because the third issue, where they go to Fantasy Island, is so devoid of tension. It's completely anticlimactic. It's they utterly dull. Mm-hmm. Break in again off panel. Yep. 
final tinkerer say, oh, come on. And he's like, okay, I've done it. Yep. Yep. And then there's literally like three pages of them going back to New York and being like, oh, New York looks terrible. Oh, we're fucked now. Like two or three I, pages I, of I, that. I, ends with them going, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Spoilers. They don't appear in Secret Invasion until the very end of it, where you f- find out that they are still in the Baxter building trying to find a power switch. Yeah. That's not a joke. Yeah, no, it is. And it, and one of the things that is interesting, which does make me think, is at the beginning, you have Bendis se- set up the scene where Sue blows it into the negative zone. And Aguirre Sakasa has to use that scene, more or less, um, and then at the end, you more or less have Franklin saying, like, yeah, there was a scroll lady. It was scroll lady. While these two guys bicker over the button. And I'm like, you know, kind of that thing of, like, did Bendis not even know that it was Lysha? Did they actually, did someone have to break that stuff out? Because in a way, part of me is like, again, the only part that seems interesting slash organic that ties into the event seems like the person maneuvering into it and out of it really couldn't give a shit about. And of course, to me, the ending of the, oh, it seemed bad and they said everything was going to be okay, but I sensed nothing was going to be okay ever again, you know? And then it's like, I I feel like there have been enough miniseries that tie into a big event where they're like, oh, and then they show up and they're like, hey guys, what's up? And, And you kind of expect that. But, like, this one really did have some weird level of... Utter disconnect from the interior. Yes, yeah. In a a way that, that, again, small mercies, but also made me just kind of feel like, what what the fuck were they thinking? You know, that combined with the fact of how boring it is and the fact that they have... Like, don't they have, like, three inkers or something on the final issue? They have they have four inkers in the first issue. Yeah, right? Makes me think that this was one of those things where, like, Bendis put it in the first issue, and then they were like, oh, shit, wait, no, we weren't going to do that. Remember? We told you we weren't going to. Oh, shit, well, maybe you guys should do it now. You know what I mean? Like, it really has... Well, I mean, uh... the thing is, like... You... For the purposes of Secret Invasion, mm-hmm. you need it to happen mm-hmm. because you need to take the Fantastic Four off the off the table. What? Well, right? I mean, right. Secret Invasion is so poorly written mm-hmm. that it is essentially what if this is happening to the entire universe, but the only two people it's really happening to, or the only two teams it's really happening to, are Nick Fury and the Young Avengers and the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Everyone else just fuck them. Yeah, which is probably one of the reasons that they did do like thirty-two different spin-off series, because the idea of it's an invasion that brings the world to its knees, right. and you don't see that happening at all, is in itself a narrative problem, yeah. right? So, yeah. so Bendis has to write the Fantastic Four out. Well, but, I mean, he has to write Mister Fantastic out. It's interesting to me how much of this is. Because Reed, as the ultra brain slash one of the architects of the the Civil War, post-Civil War universe, there's all this shit that's made about Reed. And Bendis has to acknowledge that, of course, the scrolls, no matter how much he's rewriting them into religious zealots, they're still going to be a little fucking fixated on Reed Richards. But I feel like sort of in the same way that, like... 
you know, by the time the FF was finally cancelled, which was way after this, they really had continued to fade. Like, nobody really needed any of the characters except Mr. Fantastic for storytelling slash Marvel Universe architecture reasons. Everyone I, else I'm, could just... For, I, yeah. I was going to say with the potential ex- exception of the thing, and actually that's not true. All of the FF, with the exception of, of Reed's, were narratively pointless by the time that they cancelled the book. But also, Reed was narratively pointless because he was generic smart guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you actually could basically remove him and replace him with, with Tony Stark, especially that Tony Stark was being written at the time, which was, again, generic smart guy who could do everything. Well, yes. And and, and also, gen- generic smart guy who could do everything, but, and I think that this is a crucial point, Stark fit much easily into the realm of um, ethically conflicted, I would say, much easier than Reed or just about anyone else fit, you know? Like, there's a whole subplot thing going on with Hank Pym and Scroll Hank Pym throughout Bendis' Secret Invasion, and I really feel that the whole idea that, you know, as I recall from Civil War, it's very much... Reed Richards, Hank Pym, and Tony Stark get together and more or less join forces to come up with, you know, the new fascistic Marvel Universe. You've got Phantom's own prisons. You've got the Superhero Registration Act. Tony Stark goes from being just sort of an, you know, arms dealer to the man who's literally opening, uh, running S.H.I.E.L.D. at that point. Um, And... For better or for worse, it just never really seems to fit well on Reed's shoulders, you know. And but for whatever reason, I definitely felt whether it was envy or not, it felt like reading Bendis's Secret Invasion was a I'm going to write a book that definitely people who've read Civil War are going to understand and follow, you know. I think. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, it's it's funny. Rereading Secret Invasion, like, connected with this, yeah. really made me think, um, I kind of want to do, like, a reread of all of that. Mm-hmm. Like, Civil War through Secret Invasion through Siege. Because mm-hmm. it was one story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, for better or worse. Arguably worse. But I'd be really curious to reread it all in order now and see how it hangs together. Interesting. The, you know... The one thing that I was surprised about, and I'm sorry because this this is Jeff's classic tactic of sounding like I'm building on what you're saying, and in fact I'm just going in a different direction, is how much Secret Invasion by Bendis in 2008 has a lot of stuff that feels like a dry run for the Avengers movie in 2012. Did you pick up on that, or was that just me being weird? I would say that you've been weird, to be perfectly honest with you. I, I see what you're getting at now that you've said it, but I definitely was not uh, in my mind when I was I was reading it earlier. Well, in part, large right. part because I think the, you know, in that it's an alien invasion story and it brings the heroes together and they are grumpy at each other. Sure, yeah. But I think the nature of the invasion is different. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think both of, both Avengers movie and uh, the Secret Invasion comic 
are generic invasions, but they yeah. are different types of generic invasions. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's very much to me as if Bendis being on the, the, the brain trust is aware that there's an Avengers movie coming and it's going to be about a scroll invasion. And so he decides to do I, his I'm big. sorry. They were not scrolls in the movie. They were Chitauri. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's 9 million other things. But if nothing else, I felt the there's a weird, there's various weird parallels, no more so than the our side has a Hulk slash my God has a hammer punchline toward the end where I was like, oh, that's, that's him really riffing on the Avengers movie a little hard. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. No, this is actually four years before. So, and there's a, you know, there's a lot of New York devastation. There's a lot of New York rubble uh, porn in Secret Invasion. Like... Yeah, yeah. But but again, I think you can look to Ultimates and see more, and see a more direct um, inspiration. Oh, yeah. Not only visually, but also like the Chitauri were the aliens in the Ultimates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you know? I, yep, yep. So, so I, I think... I see what you're saying, but I, I, I honestly think that it's a tenuous. It's a stretch. Would, it's a yeah, stretch. I, I, I really think it is. A stretch. I, I, on the one hand, I agree with you. On the other hand, I think that there's still, I mean, I say quote unquote something going on. It could just be that a couple of people like read that comic and were like, oh yeah, that's a good line or oh, that's a thing. It could be. It could yeah. be that Whedon read that comic and was like, oh, that's cute, and then yeah, like he didn't. Realized he was riffing off it when he wrote it. Exactly. Or you know, it's Sweden. Maybe he did. Maybe he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, getting back to the Secret Invasion Fantastic Four comic. Yes. You know, I I do want to talk about Kitson's art mm-hmm. because it is, I mean, impressively pedestrian. Mm-hmm. It it is, and and what's really funny is, just recently I've been reading the Mark Wade Kitson. Legion superheroes, which, mm. unless I'm entirely fucking up the chronology, is the thing Kitson did immediately before this. Wow! Like he went straight from Legion to this, mm-hmm. and I have problems with Kitson's art on that Legion series as well. But it is still more interesting and more dynamic than what happens in Secret Invasion Fantastic Four. It is the, Secret Invasion Fantastic Four is, I mean genuinely impressively dull in terms of character acting and in in terms of yes pace yeah like i I, it's it's visually a really boring comic you know what i think is really funny is um the you know the marvel universe version i'm sure there were nine million variants but the marvel unlimited versions that i read all had covers by alan davis and they those yeah. covers have so much more charm and design and characterization in them. And they're just three solitary images than what you get inside the books. And I mean, you know, it's not a new comic book nerd complaint to say that the covers are so much better than the insides. But holy shit, the covers really put the insides to shame without necessarily being a different thing. You know what I mean? It's not like it's, you know, an Alex Ross cover and then you open it up and it's a Don Heck interior, you know, they're sort of similar. They're similar sensibilities, kind of sort of, except 
one guy is Alan Davis and the other guy is Barry Kitson in some serious trouble and four inkers, you know? Yeah, it, it's – and honestly, none of the inkers really serving his art well. And one of them's Kitson. Yeah, that's right. Kitson himself some yep. of it. Yeah, yeah. But and, and the other thing is strange is Mick Gray is one of them. And Mick Gray is inking the Legion work. And again, it just looks better. Yeah. I wonder how much of it's coloring problem, to be honest. Mm. Because Kitson and Gray's Legion stuff is colored by Chris Blythe, mm. who was a 2000 AD colorist at the time, mm-hmm. and who does really interesting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, things that honestly are very dated now. It was very like, oh, look, I have a computer and it's 2006. Mm-hmm. But but it's still more interesting than what Chris Sotomayor does, does here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I just I I am kind of floored with how ugly this comic is. Ugly, ugly, but also dull. You know what I mean? Like it's just there's again to compare it a little bit with uh, Secret Invasion. One of the things that started cracking me up is Lionel Yu, who I don't really pay much attention to, but is an artist that I generally find attractive. And there are parts in Secret Invasion where the the miniseries where the few charms are his sort of amazing way to kind of spill into outright cartoonishness and back almost, you know, like extravagantly yet surreptitiously at the same time. But there's also shit where I'm like, that guy is like, like doing imageitis, like nobody's thing, like nobody's being drawn with actually bottom parts of their body, or like he's working his ass off to come up at a new weird angle to tilt everyone at, to make it look like they're all in the same plane of existence, and it, which is just impossible. So. You know, if nothing else, there's a way to do bad comic art to, you know, fool people's eyes. And and it is, to put it mildly, Kitson is not doing that here, you know? And no, it's it's just everything about this series, this three-issue series, and about in, continually and, and consistently across, it's the most consistent thing about this three-issue series is how nobody involved with it seems to want to be doing it. Yeah. Yep. It seems like an afterthought for the creators as much as the readers. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Exactly. I, and it, it says nothing about any of the characters. It doesn't add anything to the larger Secret Invasion story. It theoretically adds a postscript to the Lyja plot, but in such a way that... You know, while I appreciate you've been like, oh, like they're doing it with Lija, that's great. We've got we've got a, a a further chapter in Lija. Doesn't even really seem to say much about Lija. No, you know I mean, like talk about where she has last appeared in continuity, mm-hmm. and that seems a more interesting place for her to be than I'm just going to stick around the negative zone. Oh yeah, no, 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 no. I agree. I absolutely agree. And in fact, one of the things that is kind of a shit dog is, you know. <clears throat> Lyja is living as a human, is sort of, on the one hand, kind of seething with resentment that Johnny's never come looking for her after, you know, he disappeared and returned again. But, you know, has more or less moved on, gets recruited by the scrolls, does all this other stuff. I just mean in the sense of, to me, the Marvel Universe, like, out of all the horrible stuff that could have been done to Lyja, you know, in this really ridiculously 
cynical overarching yeah, you're, you're like, event. Oh, killer. Well, that's it. They didn't. I I was so afraid that she was going to suicide bomb herself in the negative zone with the Baxter building and like you know someone manages to like talk her into like killing herself by like jumping with the bomb strapped to her chest into the heart of the negative zone and it'll you know destroy everything and that's all your life's ever been about Elijah and that's all the scrolls ever want and yes yes right Johnny it's so terrible that you had to manipulate her in such a way that she in destroying herself really thought she was going to destroy the negative zone when all it did was release a wave of positive matter that restored the Baxter building back to our universe well after all Ben nobody knew her better than me sad face ending like to me at least there's a she's got her powers back and she's romping around in the negative zone which in the roberto aguirre sacasa realm has basically been like the danger level has dropped to the level of a national geographic special so part of me is like oh this is great she could pop up in another 10 years in some other event come back be cool and maybe get over Johnny and learn to live again, which I just read her Wikipedia page last night, and apparently she does with Alex Power. Did you know that? I threw up in my mouth when I read that. No. Yeah, that's what, what they say. Yeah, go to go to Wikipedia now, man. Let me tell you. I, uh, like, hold on. Uh, I didn't have the page open because it caused me too much anguish. Um Elijah, oh, fictional Elijah character. Yeah. Yep, Future oh, Foundation. God, she appears in the Future Foundation. That's right. Yep. Having assumed the identity of Yandu Odonta to escape persecution for being a scroll, she helped Foundation member Julie Power infiltrate a galactic prison. Sound familiar? Like, that's the same thing here, where one of these remnants was located. She later killed Kolroth. A Zentrix ally of the Maker for having him kill, for him having killed innocent skull children, impersonated and helped in thwarting the Maker's plans. Upon Alex Power's invitation, she subsequently joined the Future Foundation. And there's a part where up here where she says she gets together with him, which just makes me want to like vomit nine times over. Um, okay, but but real talk, even with the weird aging thing of Marvel, Alex Power has to be. A good decade plus younger than Johnny, right? Exactly! That's my thing. Like, why would they hook her up with that? I mean, of course, now I'm like, maybe I went blind and maybe I'm wrong and they didn't actually get together, get together. But I swear to God, they said they got together. God, did I like panic and and, like panic read that? I think you might have made that up. That is the saddest amount of on-air fandom I think I've ever engaged in. Okay, hold on. Where was I? Okay, that's fine. I swear they said that she was... Uh, well, okay, I gotta tell you, that would at least be a relief if that was the case. Whatever, Wikipedia. Make a monkey out of me. I don't care as long as she doesn't hook up I with Alex Power. That was in there last night and it's been edited. Yes, I love that too, where I'm like, no! And of course, on further reflection, it would be even better if you did it. <laughs> <laughs> you knew I would go to Wikipedia I before wish, this. <laughs> I wish that I was that devious. But, but sadly, no. Um, Jeff, I think we have like successfully just torn the series to shit. Yeah, basically. Basically. Like, I, you, you, we both mentioned 
you know, that we were nostalgic for the Fantastic Four. Yeah. And this series, I mean, it doesn't kill my my nostalgia for the Fantastic Four at all. Right. But it does make me glad that we didn't keep doing the Baxter building in a weird way. I I know what you <laughs> mean. Because I feel, I, I feel like the idea of if we were, you know, if we had kept going and we had reached this point. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, yeah. We just would have had to have read, read an awful lot of shit comics. Well, I mean, uh, we read a lot of shit comics right up till the end of Baxter Building. It may have... I mean, but we sort of liked them, so there was a nostalgia factor, even as we just felt horrible, you know? But I, but for me, I think um, one thing that this did was, like you said, on the one hand, I'm glad we stopped. Two wherever the FF was going by the end of Baxter building at volume one and where it has ended up here. And like I said, I, for myself, and I know you disagree, feel that Dan slot is an extension to, like you said, a very family oriented book. And for me, I think that the fantastic four is about, romance like and romance in like the multiple senses of the word you know the romantic era which is kind of about the shock and glory of discovery and the feeling of total awe and also the pains of romantic love like johnny storm having you know star-crossed love affairs i mean i'm sure he's gone on to have dozens between now and then but they're never quite the same probably because there's never that degree of teen anguish that i feel if nothing else the weird johnny Elijah strange version of shotgun wedding you know the person i married turns out to be a stranger is you know kind of relatable in a human level kind of and also stupidly larger than life, where Johnny is in love with, you know, his family's enemy. Like, they're literally star-crossed lovers, like, literally. And I'm, I am, I'm, that's probably why I like Lyja the most out of all the various permutations of, of the, the unsuccessful Johnny love affair. But I think that over time, the, for lack of a better term, the Pixarization of the Fantastic Four that happened uh, in the 21st century, while it makes sense, maneuvers from the scope of where I think Kirby was going with the Fantastic Four and and Stanley so very savvily. Um, overplayed and undercut as he felt necessary, you know? And I I don't necessarily know if you can get that particular vibe again. I kind of think in a way you've got a lot of people, you know, like someone like Tom Scioli, who's going to like just go for weird flat out, you know, make the idea so big as to be unrecognizable as opposed to like as much as I like Mark Wade and Mark Wade's comics and Wade and Waringo are kind of a highlight like they're kind of like 
it's more like it's more like a Johnny Quest cartoon with superpowers. You know what well, I mean? You you mentioned pixelization, and I think like the elephant in the room is the Incredibles movie kind of fucked the Fantastic Four, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, sort of impossible. Kind of fucked the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Because it changed everyone's idea of what the Fantastic Four should be. Yeah. Because the conventional wisdom was it was a better Fantastic Four story than the Fantastic Four was capable of. And don't get me wrong, The Incredibles is a great film. And it's a fun story and they're fun characters, but they're not the Fantastic Four. No. They have Fantastic Four DNA in them. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same thing. And at some point it became the same thing in like the collective unconscious, including the creators who are working on the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, and I think that's it. I think that, you know, Dan Slott, like any relatively sensibly pop-imbued creator of the 21st century is like, well, surely you would be a fool not to take one of the most successful superhero movies of all time that was clearly based on the FF and figure out ways to make them align a little more in a way that plays and makes sense. And, you know, and in a sense, also, I think, plays to um, Dan Slott's strengths as a writer, you know? And like I said... But but also, it's... And again, this is sort of pointing to a Dan Slott-related thing. Um, Do you remember when it was announced or, or, you know, reported, I'm not sure if it was properly announced, uh, that the next Spider-Man film is going to be a multiverse film? Yeah. I said something, I was basically like being shitty on Twitter, and I was like, yeah, the multiverse, that's what everyone thinks about when they think about Spider-Man. Because for me, Spider-Man is still like the street-level hero. No, agreed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so many people were like, yeah, but that's what Spider-Man is now. Mm -hmm. Ever since Spider-Verse the comic, but especially into Spider-Verse the movie. Yeah. Right? So then you do just lean into that. Because Mm -hmm. for an entire generation of fans, Spider-Man is the story. Mm-hmm. About the smallest version of Spider-Man, and that's what Fantastic Four has become. Right, right. There's an entire generation of people who are like, "Yeah, The Incredibles. That's a Fantastic Four story because Fantastic Four is all about family." Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So at that right. point, Fantastic Four does become a whole bit family because, like Tinkerbell, it's willed into into existence. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The the audience clapping its hands is what what causes it to. Um, sustain itself you know and and exist and change and on the one hand i agree with that you know it's and it's okay like i one of the things that was interesting also about doing fantastic four um sorry doing baxter building and reading the first 420 issues of fantastic four uh 416 sorry (laughs) i'm i'm in northern california everyone you can uh forgive me that mistake um is that most of the comics that I read as a kid that I loved when I went back and reread them, they were not particularly good. One of the things that was terrific was me being like, ah, eh, these Thomas Perez issues still hold up. And you're like, they should be set on fire. These suck. There's a blight from issue 100 to when John Byrne steps in. I sort of maybe have fondness for 196 through 200, but only if pressed, you know, and... On the one hand, I would say that you are not wrong. Like, the FF that, quote-unquote, I remember, when I went back to it, like the best kids' fiction, it it didn't really, for the didn't most part, up. exist. Yeah, it didn't hold yeah. up. It was, 
I had made it more than I um than it was in part because the power of a kid who is reading stuff that he thinks is a, is about adults when he doesn't know anything about adults everything is hugely larger and that that really works very well with the Fantastic 4 because of what Kirby did in his run of making things so much larger than comics had ever been or in a way felt before and Lee adding embellishments to make that feel human in a way and and so in in a sense you know the Fantastic 4 cover band versions to me played very well as a kid and and the post incredibles uh fantastic 4 maybe they play great with people for exactly the same reasons or kids at exactly the same age that there's something where the ff has such a broad set of toys in the toy box that you really have to work down to the level of fantastic 4 secret invasion to make them all seem as dull as they are you know like i could see someone who's a kid who the first their first comic being fantastic four secret invasion one through three and it and it would it might blow their mind because there's still enough um detritus in there that seems to point to you know, a limitless cosmos that's got to be super exciting to those kids, as opposed to someone like me who feels like I've watched, you know, an entire village um, be raised down to one half clean porta potty, you know? I think that's a wonderful metaphor. <laughs> uh, I, I also want to say, before we go too far, that that was a wonderful impression of me as well. Uh, sort of summarizing how I felt about the Fantastic Four during Baxter Building. And such good impression of me vocally. I think you really got my nuance. But <laughs> I think that, like, you're you're not you're not wrong, right? There 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 is a... One of the things that Drock does and Baxter Building did mm-hmm. is it gives you a different understanding of these characters. Mm-hmm. Right? Because for Baxter Building for you, and I think less so for me, but I this is much stronger for Drog for me. Mm-hmm. Like I have a nostalgic understanding of who I think Judge Dredd is. I have right. a nostalgic understanding of who I think Fantastic Four is based on the comics I read when I was a kid. Right. Right. And then you go back and you you visit the stuff that came first. You go back and you see things being built up and you're surprised by the bits that aren't in place. Yeah. You know, like Lee and Kirby's Reed Richards is way more of an action hero mm-hmm. than I remembered, but also than I imagined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And so when you get to, like for me, the burn stuff for you, the, the Thomas, Thomas Perez stuff, you're like, oh yeah, I remember this. I remember this comic. Mm-hmm. But you differently because you're like, why happened to like the, the great Reed Richards? Mm-hmm. What like the, that good version? Why did they never go back to that? Why was that dropped? Mm-hmm. You know, or in Drock, you read like the the Ennis or the Miller dread, mm-hmm. and it feels much worse in context of what yeah. you've read. Yep. Also, you're like, there's all these cues they've missed. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not just flattening the character. They're picking up the most boring parts of them to emphasize. Right. 
but your mm-hmm. understanding of the character, yeah, like your nostalgia becomes changed, yes, right. Your nostalgia literally becomes a nostalgia for something that doesn't exist, yeah, right, right. Because even the stories you remember reading, you can remember reading them, like you can have the the sense memory of I was in this room reading this comic, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But the stories are different. The mm-hmm. stories become different. Um. And and so you do end up with this very this this deeper understanding of the characters. Mm-hmm. For better or worse. I don't say things for better. Right? Like you do lose the nostalgia to an extent or nostalgia changes. But but you know, I think that I like the Fantastic Forum more now for having done Baxter building. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I know that I like Judge Dredd more for doing drug. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, but it also means you read something like Secret Invasion Fantastic Four, and it's infinitely more depressing. Yeah. Because you are more aware of the potential, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I got I got Loki annoyed at this comic. Oh, I can imagine. And you should, honestly. But, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I, and there is more to do. With these characters, there's more to do with this fucking story, Jeff. Yeah. Oh, definitely. You know, like, like everyone involved in this comic seems to view this comic as an obligation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and one they'd rather get over as quickly as possible. Completely. And so, what does that mean for us as the readers? How are we supposed to be excited about that? Mm. No, that's a good question, and and uh, I mean, I'm. <clears throat> I'm sure you mean it to be a rhetorical one. Thank goodness. Yeah, no, I I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I realized that in time. So yes, let it, let us let it be the last rhetorical question, perhaps, and bring things to a close on that very good note. I yeah, think. I, I, I sure version people don't read these comments. <laughs> Curse you, I, I, Steve I, Morris, you adorable bunny man, you. I, I, I do read the shelf that's posted in Secret Invasion. They're genuinely great. I Actually, now that I'm – I should look up the uh, – You're doing did. show notes, man, so don't worry about it. Yeah, don't knock I yourself out. I look up mm-hmm. the name of, of the – yeah, it's Ritesh Babu. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote up for Secret Invasion issue six, and I will put a note for that in the show notes. But read those, but I don't revisit the comics because they, they're just – not only do they not stand up, they weren't that great in the first place, and they don't stand up. Yeah, yeah. No? Imagine that. Like that's, that's a whole thing. Anyway, I'm I'm going to I'm going to start wrapping things up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will be back in a month with Drog for real. Like we're not going to be invaded by scrolls again. We will <laughs> genuinely be doing Drog in a month. Yeah, uh, and we're going to be doing case files. Jeff, Jesus, twenty seven. Does that sound right? Twenty eight. 77 at this point. Okay. Um, but, uh, which has the Predator crossover, I think. Oh, right. You know, so, hooray! We've got a great one next week. Uh, Jeff, can you very quickly, while we are wrapping this up, like, we've talked, like, we postponed last week because of because of your health. Like, we made a reference to you being sick again. Like, can you at least tell people that you are feeling better? <laughs> like, put people's minds at rest? Because it just struck me that, like, you, we delayed for a week and you said you were sick at the start and we haven't actually left people with any reason to know that you're feeling better. Right. Um, yeah, well... Uh... <coughs> 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 I'm doing great. I'm doing great, everyone. 
say, I'm leaving those coughs in. Normally I don't that, but that was so well timed that I'm, I'm leaving those in. <coughs> Please do. <coughs> yeah. No, in theory I'm on the mend, but there's only one way for you to find out, which is tune in next week for a regular <laughs> wait what? Oh god, what a horrifying thought. Um, <laughs> tune in next week to see if Jeff's still here, everyone. That's right. God, he's he's he sounds sicker than he is, I hope. I hope. Fingers are crossed. <laughs> He'll be here next week. That's what I'm saying. Uh, there's going to be show notes for this up on waywalkpodcast.com on Monday. There is also going to be posts at some point this week, maybe even posts from Secret Invasion and or Secret Invasion Fantastic Four on the mm. Instagram at instagram.com forward slash waywalkpod. We have a Twitter account at waywalkpodcast. Jeff has a Twitter account at lazybastid at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I have a Twitter account at Graham M at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. And we are a Patreon-supported podcast, which is the reason the Baxter Building existed and exists again, uh, and it's also the reason Drock exists. Jeff, take it away. I will. Hey, you guys. <clears throat> I've got another coughing fit coming on, so I'll keep it super short. Thank you. Thank you to the people who've listened to us through all of our years and hundreds of podcasts and managed to keep us, um, have managed to keep yourselves entertained while listening to us and have, have uh, managed to keep us inspired by reaching out and sharing your anecdotes and your comments and your questions and threads and on Twitters and into emails and things. And for the really incredible service that the people of our Patreon provide by throwing us a little bit of their hard-earned dosh. We um, were among the first podcasts to actually ever switch to Patreon, as far as I recall, and we promised a ton of amazing things, um, most of which uh, we've not really technically delivered in a very long time, and I'm filled with shame about that. But nevertheless, you guys do give us a little bit of hard-earned dosh. You seem absolutely incredibly supportive and we work very very hard to bring you drock um wait what podcast basically three episodes a month um i you know i don't want to say dozens of hours a month because it doesn't quite work out that way but let's say dozens of hours you know several months and hundreds of hours over the course of the year or years um we thank you for, for supporting that insane endeavor. We also want to give a special shout out to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, for her continuing support of this podcast and for her support of our other insane endeavor, this little neck of the celestial realm we call Earth. Graham? I really thought you were going to say we call home. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> so close. So yeah. close to saying that. Um, like I said, we're going to be back next week with a regular bait what unless Jeff is dead. Uh, <laughs> like, Jeff won't be dead. I, oh, God, hashtag. I meant to say asterisk. I've been watching too much Love Island, which I suspect is what we're also going to be talking about next oh, week. Oh, that sounds about there, right. Yeah, totally. There's a clue. Yeah. Uh, God. Yeah, we, we will be back in a week. But um, because it's a Baxter building, Jeff, do you even remember how you ended Baxter buildings? Uh, yeah, actually, I do, um, which is basically thank you so much for joining us, everybody, and we'll see you next time, we don't know when that is, in the lobby of the Baxter Building.